Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, your guide to the fundamentals of better deer hunting. And now, your host, Tony Peterson. Hey everybody, welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. I'm your host, Tony Peterson, and this episode is all about keeping your presence to an absolute minimum while trying to kill a buzzer beater deer. It's bittersweet, it just is, watching another deer season screech to a halt. Hopefully you had a good one. Maybe you have a full freezer and, I don't know, a taxidermy bill. If you don't, or you're just out there trying to fill one last tag, I feel for you. I'm in the same boat. While I love late season hunting, sometimes, I mostly kind of hate it for one reason. I have to be so damn careful. You probably do too, and if not, you probably either have an amazing spot or never kill anything. This episode is kind of just all about that reality. You know, the reality of treading real lightly. And honestly, it's a pretty good lesson for any part of the season. Although it's most noticeable during the last gasps of a dying season. Many of you fine folks are probably a little bit too young to be married yet, so you probably think life is going to be pretty sweet for a long time, and that, I don't know, you'll be the master of your domain. Now, I'm sure the older, already married, and maybe unmarried crowd is laughing at you, as I am. All of us beaten down, wise old married folks, we're having a good, hearty chuckle at your expense. Our best, ah, ah, ah. Count Dracula laugh, perhaps. Now, why do we do this? This mocking laugh of ours, you might ask? Well, because we know better. We've been in the trenches dodging sniper fire and looking for grenades that were lobbed in our direction. And, I don't know, just trying to keep our heads down and weather the old firefight. 
Now, some of you might argue that I'm being a bit too dramatic, and you'd probably be right, but I don't care. The thing about being married is that sometimes your spouse will get a little spicy, and not in a good way either. They'll decide that today, when you should be able to lay around and watch football or maybe tinker with some of your old fishing tackle, or take a goddamn nap because you're 42 and you're tired and you should be able to partake in an afternoon siesta if you so desire, ah, they'll decide that today you have some chores to do. You'll be volunteered for cleanup of the gutters or some other crappy homeowner task you should have already done, but you spent too much time in a tree stand or maybe following the labs around while trying to shoot a limit of roosters. In this situation, you are done for. The crosshairs have not only settled on your forehead, but the sniper has slowed her breathing down and started squeezing the old trigger. Puff, right into your stupid head goes another honeydew list bullet. Now that's a bummer, but there's an almost scarier time in marriage. That's when the spiciness sounds like it's coming on, but isn't quite there yet. Kind of like when you're standing on a beach of a, I don't know, some island somewhere and all the water sucks away and you go, I think I've heard about this before. And then you realize there's potentially a tsunami coming. It's that time where you know one wrong move and suddenly you're getting the ladder out of the garage to go scoop leaf slop out of the gutters. This is tiptoe through the old living room tulips time, my friends. And if you have kids, they'll also learn pretty quickly to recognize this danger zone. The key here is I don't know, discretion, subtlety, subterfuge, submarines, if you can find one to take you on an underwater escape. You have to choose every move wisely. You have to look busy and look productive without actually being either. You get bonus points and often overlooked if that business involves putting your little allies to pretend work too. Everyone must be careful not to tip their hand. It's not a dance as old as time, but I'll bet we've been doing some version of it ever since we left one too many clubs out in the corner of our cave and our hairy but lovely Neanderthal wives grunted and grunted at us until we organized them in the corner. Do you know what this has to do with late season deer hunting? A lot. Take the moment when your lovely spouse is at peak spiciness. I mean, I don't know, like ghost pepper level spiciness. It's too late for you. You have to accept your fate and get to work. That's like ignoring how crunchy the snow is or that the wind is blowing right into the main bedding area and walking in to hang and hunt without thinking for one second about how much noise you'll make or how visible you are or how you keep clanking every piece of metal you can on different pieces of metal until it sounds like a high school shop class out there in the woods. Instead of going bull in the china shop here, you should consider it red zone time. How are you going to sneak in and seal the deal when you know the deer are prone to peak spiciness at any hint that some camo-clad asshole is out there trying to kill them? Subtlety, sneakiness, ninja moves. You have to keep your presence to an absolute minimum when you're dealing with late-season deer. How do you do that? For starters, I actually think the late season might be the best time to run trail cameras aside from the early season. If you want to know who is walking by without having to be there to see them, this is kind of your moment. I'd also say, don't be afraid to hide your cameras this time of year. I hunt some places where deer never, ever, ever, ever look at cameras and other places where they not only almost always look at them, but often obviously spook from them. To keep your felt presence even lower, 
cell cameras are a pretty sweet option for this time of year. Now you can hide your cameras by blending them in with some sticks or maybe a few pine boughs or red oak limbs, or you can hang them high and point them down. That's my go-to strategy. But I also think this keeps some of the deer from getting photographed. Keep this in mind if you go this route, because it's likely that your cameras are missing some deer, especially if you're mounting them high. Now, the next step in this whole subtle late season hunter thing is to accept that you can only control your pressure. Maybe you have a spot to yourself, then great. Things are going to be pretty easy for you. If you hunt public land or permission-based ground that you have to share, then you're going to have to forget what the other people might be doing and focus on your own hunting. Now, this is tough, but it is what it is. Now, it does require surgical timing for your hunts and an eye toward resting spots. I know this is really tough because for most of us, we just have to hunt when we can. I also know that I've bitched a lot about the advice of resting spots because it mostly comes from people who have primo ground and kind of a special hunting situation. I mean, how often have you watched some unfortunate 170-incher walk into a food plot on the outdoor channel after the host said or whispered into the camera that they haven't hunted this plot all season? You don't have that, but you also have the chance to be a better hunter for it. Those folks won't get any better despite having a wall full of booners. So, I don't know, take some solace in that, I guess. Anyway, as much as I hate to be a hypocrite, the idea of resting spots and only hunting them when the conditions line up is something I hate for every part of the season, but the last couple of weeks, that's when I stop hating it. Now, I've said this a lot because I've seen it in action my whole life, but whitetails now, in most places, are as intolerant of our mistakes as they'll be at any point. Now, I know we say stuff like that all the time, especially when it comes to mature bucks, but I don't actually believe that mature bucks are that special compared to the rest of the deer right now. I don't think that mature bucks are nearly as cagey as we like to say, and I don't think they behave like a different species, which is something I've heard from a lot of outdoor communicators. This often comes from people who have a knack and the opportunity to keep bucks dumb all through their lives until they choose to kill them. But who wants to say I hacked nature and made what could be a crafty animal into the equivalent of a lobotomized moron type of deer so I can kill it easily and show the world how skilled I am? In a way, those high fence without the fence deer prove my point. If you leave them alone, they'll get easier to kill. This goes for five years of their life and five days in the late season. Now, even though even those bucks you know that aren't on primo ground i just think they're mostly rare and they live a selfish life where they look out for numero uno so we tend to think of them as cagier than everyone else but that's a mind trick we play on ourselves instead of factoring in their general rarity i think those deer have mostly witnessed how the general hunting public tends to hunt them and they've altered their lives to avoid our patterns i think it's a pretty simple example of prey animal you know, just reacting over and over to a specific type of predatory behavior until beneficial habits become ensconced in their being. And then I think when you take that in a deer that's of a caliber that there might only be one or two in a section or one or two on the property, and it can seem like they are pretty special at avoiding us. I also think that when it comes to all deer in the herd, 
they just tend to be less tolerant of our presence the later it goes into the season. But this is an ebb and flow thing, which can work to your advantage. If you can leave them alone for a few days or a week in a specific spot, they're more likely to give you a chance than if you hunt them every day. Because the more they hear, see, and smell us, the more they react. The less they hear, see, and smell us, the less they react. So your job is to keep the times when they see, hear, or smell you to a minimum. But here's the thing. These rules don't apply to just mature bucks. I'll give you a real world example. I have permission to hunt late season does on a farm by my house that is a sad example of urban sprawl. What was 430 acres a few years ago is now just over 100. The rest of the land is full of McMansions that will cost you 750K just for a big house on a tiny lot. This property still holds deer, the remaining part of the property anyway. But the landowner and his family and his buddies are big time shotgun hunters. Someone hunts that farm every day of the shotgun season, and often lots of people hunt it. And that season here where I live is almost the entire month of November. This year, when they wrapped up, it was my turn to go out there with a muzzleloader. Do you know how nice it felt to pick up a scoped gun after like eight years of only bow hunting? I honestly felt like I was going grocery shopping. I felt bad that it was going to be so easy. Well, deer hunting likes to remind us that we often don't understand reality until it's kicking us right in our asses. With fresh snow and a weapon that I can really reach out and touch them, I headed out to sit on a beautiful icy cold afternoon after resting that property for, I guess, about six days since the gun season had ended. That night, I mostly watched turkeys, which will be real trouble this spring, but were not the reason I was out there. Now, I also saw a few deer, but nothing anywhere near the best cover. The cover, you know, with all the box blinds and ladder stands in it that have witnessed a revolving cast of blaze orange-clad characters over the last four weeks throughout all parts of the rut. When I drove out that first night, the bean field on the farm was covered and I mean covered in deer. They were all feeding right next to rush hour traffic. So I figured I'd cut them off the next night by going in really sneaky-like into an area that I figured they just had to be staging to get to where they were when I saw them. But they weren't. As soon as I settled in that next night, I could see six of them across the highway on a property that might as well have been on the moon. The only deer I saw that night was a 130-inch eight-pointer that stood up out of a little cedar thicket and walked right past me. I even texted the landowner that there was a good one coming to see if maybe he'd feel a little charity toward the guy who guides all of his kids on the farm to turkeys and is the primary supplier of slightly used bows to his family members. But his response was a hard no. Okay. I also realized that night that the deer I was hunting after one night of my pressure where I was pretty sneaky, had reverted back to a less quality property across the road where, not coincidentally, no one can hunt them. But with nothing to lose and the muzzleloader season coming to a close, I went back out there the next night, deeper into the timber, to see if I could pick up a straggler that wasn't on the main herd program. While out there, the landowner texted me that if a scrapper buck came by, I could shoot it. Now, that might not seem like a big deal in this podcast and to many of you fine listeners, 
but it made me really, really happy. I was hunting hungry on a burned out property in single digit temperatures in Minnesota. And what made me even way happier was that the only deer that came out that night to wind his way through the cattails was a three-pointer that might break 20 inches if I give him a bonus half a foot or so. That buck, a year and a half old, obviously, was one of the few deer that didn't get the pressure memo. And he made a bad mistake of walking by the only outdoor writer in the industry who has a soft spot in his heart for shooting sporks and a never-ending desire to see the white packages with shitty handwriting pile up in his freezer. The takeaway from this story, because I'm probably not making it all that clear, is that even careful pressure can be too much pressure in the late season. If you're not paying attention to the details, and I mean all of the details, you have great opportunity to push the deer out of most of your hunting area or send them back to their old nocturnal ways. Now, a good way to look at this is to be honest about the deer you're seeing and what deer you think are around. What's showing up on your camera? When you go hunt, are you seeing anything or is it totally dead? Is the sign still there? What's going on right now? Not what should they be doing? What are they doing? Now, if you're not seeing them, they know you're there most likely. They know where you park. They know how you walk in and they know where you sit. This means you have to get tricky with your presence when you do finally hunt. You know, take a few days off, lull them into a false sense of security, but then do something different. Park in a different spot if you can. Walk in from the north instead of the south if you can. Take some calculated risks despite what you think you know. Because if the deer aren't showing, then it doesn't matter. Your best laid plans are burned. It's time to show them something they haven't seen before. And please pay attention. I mean really pay attention. I don't know how many of my late season deer kills have come from seeing something, some glimpse of brown hide in the timber or the swamps, and then sneaking in later at a different time for a closer look. Now, of course, this is also the time when a lot of us should just be hunting deer. I recently recorded a Wired to Hunt episode with Alex Gilstrom, and this came up. Actually, it always does when I talk to Alex for a simple reason. It's crucial. If you can't find daylight movers of any variety, you sure as hell won't kill a mature buck. Now, a lot of hunters have a problem with this in the late season because they can find daylight movers in the other parts of the season. But this isn't the early season with those barely hunted deer on their soybean field pattern. It's not those stagers in October that are looking for acorns and a good place to make a scrape back in the timber. It's not the rut and all the goodness that that brings. It's the last gasp part of the season with cold weather that amplifies sound a diminished deer herd due to so much hunting and that post-apocalyptic feel of the whole thing where the four-legged survivors duck and move and make decisions based solely on not wanting to be anywhere near us the most basic tenant of finding success right now whether that is measured in a mature doe for the freezer an unlucky spork who thinks he's got the whole place to himself or a 173-inch buck with double drop tines is to not let them know you're in the woods with them. Now, this is a good move all season, but an absolute necessity now. Without that veil of secrecy, you're going to have a hell of a time with those buzzer beater deer. So keep hunting, but tread lightly, my friends. There's still time, but it's dwindling away right now. 
And be sure to tune in next week because I'm going to do kind of a seasonal recap and talk about how to analyze your past season and what to do if you're like me and you feel like it was kind of a clunker type of hot garbage season. That's it for this week. I'm Tony Peterson. This has been the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you want more whitetail wisdom, check out TheMeatEater.com slash Wired and visit our Wired to Hunt YouTube feed to watch how-to videos until you're sick to death of seeing Mark and I spouting off about how to kill the big ones. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.